The part of Ben Goldfarb's new book that will first draw your attention are the innumerable creatures killed by cars on the world's roads. Each year, tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of animals become roadkill. But his book is about more than just the body count. It's about the roads themselves. It's about the study of road ecology and how they've altered the natural world. Highways and streets and thoroughfares keep wild animals from migrating. They disrupt habitat. They spread invasive plants, create noise pollution, and shatter biotic integrity. Goldfarb told us they can even tweak the genes of animals. A road can influence the way an animal actually evolves. It's what happened to the cliff swallow. So cliff swallows are these birds who often build their mud nests on the underside of highway overpasses and bridges. And, you know, these cliff swallows are really good at taking advantage of all of this sort of novel habitat that we've created for them in the form of all of these highway bridges. But, of course, you know, living over a highway is a dangerous place to be, right? And some cliff swallows get hit by cars. So in the 1980s, this cliff swallow scientist named Charles Brown began this very long-term study of cliff swallows in Nebraska. And he, you know, just sort of picked up roadkill, cliff swallow roadkill, whenever he found it. Decades went by and he collected all of this roadkill. And then in sort of the mid-2000s, he just had this epiphany, which was that over time, fewer cliff swallows were getting hit by cars. He thought about why that was. You know, and it wasn't because there were fewer cliff swallows out there. The populations were still, you know, doing pretty well. And so he began to think about the birds themselves. And he did all of these analyses of these cliff swallow specimens he had collected over many decades. And what he realized is that over time, cliff swallow wings were getting shorter. And the reason for that, so if you're a bird, having a long wing is good for long, straight flights, whereas having a short wing is good for maneuverability and agility, you know, making all of the tight rolls and turns that you need to, you know, get out of the way of an 18-wheeler barreling down an interstate. So the long-winged swallows, which weren't as maneuverable, were getting hit by cars, and the short-winged swallows were the ones that were surviving. So it was natural selection, weeding out the longer-winged birds, selecting for the shorter-winged birds, and causing the whole population to evolve. And, you know, I just love that story because we think about evolution as being this process that unfolds over thousands or millions of years. And yet roads and cars and traffic are such a powerful selective pressure that they can actually, you know, literally drive evolution in a matter of decades. Morphologically, they've changed, right? Their wings have gotten shorter to respond to traffic. But, you know, I think that they're also, you know, in some deeper philosophical sense, they're not the same birds anymore, right? They've been shaped by us humans and by our built environment and by our infrastructure and our cars. I was very conscious while writing the book of not making it about roadkill per se. I mean, certainly roadkill is part of the story, but it's a book about so much more than that. 
It's about all of the different ways that our built world interacts with nature. You know, and then, of course, roads are shaping our own lives, right? They're fragmenting our communities, and the road noise pollution that they create is, you know, in some cases, literally killing us. So it's really about the much larger role that roads play in our ecosystems, on our landscapes, and in our collective psyche. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, the environmental journalist Ben Goldfarb is talking about his book. It's called Crossings. He can trace his own interest in this subject of road ecology back 10 years, October of 2013. He was on a road trip, of course. I was in Montana that fall and I was writing about, you know, wildlife conservation and ecology as I tend to do. I had the chance to visit some wildlife crossing structures on Highway 93 north of uh, Missoula. Some very famous wildlife crossings, you know, overpasses, underpasses, tunnels, all of these different structures that, you know, allow animals to safely move from one side of this highway, Highway 93, to, to another. And... It was, you know, almost a, an epiphany in some ways because I had the, the chance to stand up on top of one of these wildlife overpasses uh, with a guy named Marcel Hauser, who's a, a great road ecologist. And, you know, it was just this kind of amazing moment on a, a couple of different levels. I mean, first, it was just really beautiful. You know, we're standing on top of this vegetated bridge at twilight watching traffic go un- underneath us. And it was very inspiring, right? I mean, we do so much uh, on this planet to, you know, make animals' lives harder and more difficult and dangerous. And, you know, here was this beautiful, you know, aesthetically pleasing multi-million dollar structure that we'd built to make their lives easier and, and safer. And, I, you know, I found that kind of lovely. But it was also sort of an intellectually fascinating experience as well, especially being up there with Marcel, who's, you know, really an expert in this this topic, you know, because, look, here is this built piece of infrastructure that we humans have created that has to be appealing or enticing to grizzly bears and elk and moose and bobcats and weasels and, you know, the whole suite of animals that live in this ecosystem and that encounter the highway and need to find a way across it. You know, Marcel was talking about the need to, you know, add logs and rocks to this bridge so that, you know, meadow voles and other rodents would feel safe crossing it. And, you know, what about a kind of a vegetated screen to block headlights so that, uh, you know, black bears wouldn't be uh, scared off by oncoming traffic. So it just you know, struck me that designing wildlife crossings and really thinking more broadly about how animals encounter roads, you know, really requires putting yourself in the hooves or paws or feet uh, of other species. And that's just a, you know, kind of a fascinating intellectual challenge that road ecologists, people who work on this issue, have to deal with. And so it was really that experience back in 2013 that first got me excited about this topic. There's another kind of um, epiphanal moment you write about, not for yourself, but um, this ecologist named Richard Foreman. Um, This was in the 1990s. um, And he's, as you tell it in the book, he's he's there in his office with some students. And they're looking at this satellite photograph of a forest. And it's not the birth of road ecology, but it's an important moment, I think, it seems in the story. Tell, Tell this part. Yeah, so, you know, Richard is a a kind of a landscape ecologist at Harvard, and on this particular day, he's in his office with students, and there's a a big 
sort of satellite image or maybe an aerial image of a forest. And he's, you know, sort of talking to the students and kind of expounding on all of the different features of this image. You know, here's where the animals move through the landscape. Here's, you know, how the water runs off. And then all of a sudden he looks at the image and sees that there's a road running right through the middle of this forest. And he says, you know, it's funny. We, we know a lot about the ecology of everything else in this picture, but we don't actually know much about that thing, that road. And that was sort of the birth of road ecology. And Richard was the one who coined that term, at least in English, in the mid-1990s. And I just love that moment because, I, you know, I think that it testifies to something really fundamental about roads, which is that, you know, there's such constant daily features in our lives that they're sort of invisible to us, right? We use them every day. And as a result, we don't really notice them. And, you know, I think that the point of this field of road ecology and, you know, the point of this book is to make us see them in a, in a new way and, and uh, recognize the enormous impacts they play in structuring our country and our landscapes and our, our lives. So, this is the 1990s. I can't imagine that we weren't thinking about the larger environmental impacts of roads before then. What do you mean that this is sort of the birth of road ecology? I mean, we were thinking about it, but we hadn't really, what, defined the, the, um, the study of it? Yeah, I, I think I think that's true. I mean, I mean, certainly, look, you know, the road ecology, uh, you know, as kind of an unnamed discipline, you know, goes back to the early 1900s, yeah. you know, to the to the birth, the, yeah. the birth of cars or the proliferation of cars. You know, you can go back to the 1920s and, uh, you know, read these studies by wildlife biologists, you know, driving around the countryside in Iowa and saying, you know, wow, look at all of these dead, you know, ground squirrels and woodpeckers and garter snakes. You know, what is this kind of terrifying new technology, the automobile? doing to nature, right? So, you know, certainly Richard was not the first person to think about roads and cars in, in kind of ecological terms. But, you know, I think that defining road ecology helped to coalesce attention around what a, a huge issue roads really are. You know, I think that for a long time, mm. ecologists and, and, and really the conservation community, you know, didn't pay much attention to roads, right? It was deforestation. It was, you know, it was mining. It was poaching. It was overgrazing. You know, now it's climate change, right? You know, there are all of these other sort of ecological impacts that we, you know, we being sort of like this larger, you know, community of people concerned about conservation uh, have focused on. And, you know, and roads really received short shrift, I think, in that litany of impacts. And, you know, I think that Richard, by defining this new discipline, you know, helped to bring a lot of both wildlife folks and, you know, and transportation engineers to the table and say, hey, wait a second, you know, roads are not just, you know, one of the background factors that's, you know, affecting mm -hmm. ecosystems and wildlife. They're actually one of the determining factors, you know, maybe the most determining factor in the health of wildlife populations. You know, I, I know that, uh, as we've been saying, this, you know, book's not all about roadkill, right? And neither is road ecology. But, you know, as, as Richard uh, observed, there's literally nothing that we do to kill more wild animals on land than drive, right? Uh, so, you know, I, th I think that defining road ecology was helpful in, in uh, you know, kind of clarifying the, the stakes of the issue in some ways. You uh, write in the book that, you know, any engineer will tell you that roads ostensibly exist to serve society. But you say in truth it's probably the other way around. Society 
exists to serve a road. Explain what you mean because it sort of gets at you, – you write about um, – like for example, in the book, you write about how we think about a road as this fixed, invaluable thing. Yeah. But the question – this is how you put it in the book – isn't why did the chicken cross the road but why did the road cross the land? Just explain your spin on, on the way we think about roads. You know, you nailed it, Doug, right? That these structures have been around, you know, in some fashion for longer than we've all been alive, right? Of course, you know, the Romans built roads thousands of years ago, and even our interstate highways, you know, are sort of the legacy of first animal trails, you know, often bison moving across the landscape, which then became Native American footpaths, which then became, you know, wagon roads, and then gravel roads, and then asphalt roads, and now it's, you know, now they're, now it's I 80, right? Um, and so, you know, because because these structures are, are so, you know, because their histories are so deep, we tend to view them as these kind of inevitable, permanent structures, you know, like like rivers, for example, you know, things that have kind of always been out there and, and always will be out there. You know, I think that's part of why we kind of dismiss their ecological impacts as well. It's like, well, these things have always been there. So, you know, whatever they're doing must be just kind of natural. When in reality, you know, so many of these roads are, are products of, of course, human history and, you know, decisions that we've made. And in some cases, you know, lobbying by contractors and the federal government itself sort of advocating for an expanded transportation network. Part of what I'm trying to do in, in making that point is just reconfigure roads from being these, you know, inevitable natural artifacts to really being you know, human constructions that, you know, were sort of the products of deliberate decision making in, in many cases. And if we put those roads there for a reason, you know, we can also rethink them in, in some ways and, and uh, you know, redesign them to be more uh, ecologically sensible. Yeah, which we'll get to, of course, the way some are rethinking that. When we um, – when humans, as far as you can tell, started building these roads and these road networks – was there ever a time in the history, not recent history, when humans thought about the impact on animals and habitat? Or is that a quaint idea? You know, I, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think there was a, a whole lot of thought about wildlife and, and ecosystems in the early days of road building. You know, certainly you, yeah. you can find isolated instances and people who thought about it. You know, I mean, even even Henry David Thoreau, right, and, you know, in the 1800s, you know, is, is writing about how, uh, you know, turtles are getting trapped in wagon ruts and getting crushed by carriages, right? So these impacts kind of predate the car itself. But it's not like, you know, Thoreau called for, you know, sweeping legislation that would, uh, you know, right. prevent that from happening, obviously. You know, it's really not until the 1960s, you know, and, and the kind of the automotive safety revolution begins to take hold that, uh, you know, people really start to think about roads and wildlife, mostly because they're thinking about how, you know, wildlife is impacting and endangering drivers, right? It's, you know, it's, right. it's uh, wait a second, there are all of these white-tailed deer, you know, crossing our highways and killing drivers. What are we going to do about that? So the understanding that roads and nature interact in really profound ways, you know, that's a, that's a pretty modern uh, understanding. Mm. You mentioned the the really important sort of transition moment that plays out in the late 50s, 60s. But before we get there, I did want to ask about the stoners, yeah. Dayton and his wife Lillian, because what I loved about them, this was in the 1920s. In fact, June 1924, which was kind of um, 
an, another one of those sort of birth moments of road ecology. They go out on the road. And what I, what I really like about the story is they're among the first to really start to notice all of these dead creatures on the road. Tell us about the stoners. Yeah, and the stoners are a couple of wildlife biologists in Iowa. You know, they're sort of undertaking this road trip one summer. I'm not sure what they were driving, but probably a Model T. And <laughs> they're seeing all of these dead creatures along the roadside. And, you know, and they're biologists, so they start to wonder, you know, how many animals are dying, what species. And, you know, they start taking these really voluminous notes on the roadkill that they're spotting. And uh, eventually those notes get published in the journal Science, which is really sort of the first formal study of the impacts of roads on wildlife. And, you know, I think that one of the things that makes the stoners and, you know, then all of the sort of wildlife biologists who kind of followed immediately in their footsteps so interesting is that, you know, they're they're really thinking about the issue of roadkill, which is a term that, you know, didn't exist yet, um, mm. you know, in mm. the same context as they're thinking about cars' impacts on humans, right? I mean, I think that's one of the fascinating things about the early history of cars is that, you know, when the car first shows up on the American landscape, people are not excited about it. You know, people are actually terrified, right? Uh, you know, they're incredibly unsafe. Nobody really knows how to drive. There's no, you know, there are no traffic lights or road signs. Pedestrian per capita death rates were actually much higher than they are today. And today they're, you know, still pretty darn high. You know, there are all of these sort of urban reformers who are, you know, wringing their hands and organizing protests against this terrifying new technology. You know, the, the automobile that's, you know, taking over American city streets and, uh, you know, squeezing out the kids who used to play stickball and so on. So all of these big protests against the automobile. And, and that's sort of the tradition that the stoners are working in, you know, and, and actually in this scientific paper that the stoners write, you know, they, they make this point very explicit, you know, that the roads of Iowa are already stained with human blood. And, you know, they're also stained with the blood of wild animals as well. So those early road ecologists, even though they wouldn't call themselves that, you know, were, were thinking along these very human lines about how cars are, you know, endangering both us and uh, wild creatures. That's Ben Goldfarb. His book is Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. We'll take a break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. Let's talk about the next big development that you were referring to. It comes in the late 50s, 60s, and it's it's about deer, basically. That, like, this is the this is the pivot point, right? The story of deer. Take us through this part. You know, so one of the kind of the interesting things that happens right after the stoners and other early wildlife biologists is that you know there's this kind of initial period where there's there's lots of research about the impacts of roads and, and wildlife on wildlife, uh, you know, in the 1920s and 30s. And then all of that kind of dries up and people just sort of forget about it and say, okay, you know, the car is, you know, become this unquestioned conqueror of the landscape. And, uh, you know, fretting about wildlife is, is sort of pointless. And, you know, road ecology sort of seems destined to die before it's born. But then, as you say, in the 1950s, you know, the important development that happens is, is that deer start to explode 
deer or a species that is obviously they're you know both mule deer and whitetail deer are sort of ubiquitous today but you know they were hunted nearly to extinction you know in the in the late 19th century and you know by the early 20th century there were very few deer on the american landscape and it's not really until the middle of the 20th century <laughs> that deer are really rebounding you know, in large part because of the suburbs, right? You know, all of, all of these big new highways are allowing people to flee the cities for these new suburban landscapes and suburbs are really good deer habitat. You know, they're kind of, they're great edge habitats. You know, there's lots of ornamental landscaping for deer to eat. There are no predators. And so, you know, deer populations are, are booming in the suburbs just as, you know, the interstate highway system is being built. And so Americans are driving farther and faster than ever. And suddenly, you know, there's this 150-pound mammal wandering into the middle of the highways, endangering human lives, right? Nobody dies when they hit a, a garter snake, you know, but they can certainly die when they hit a white-tailed deer. You know, you see in the middle of, you know, starting in the, really in the 50s and 60s, you know, you see this, this renewed interest in the connection between roads and traffic and and nature and wildlife but you know whereas the stoners were concerned about the impacts that cars were having on animals you know now engineers are concerned about the impacts that animals are having on cars right everybody's sort of worried about what this new explosion of of deer means for human safety and you know you start to see all of these wildlife biologists and transportation engineers trying to solve that problem the problem of deer killing human beings but then comes this moment that you write about in the story where the numbers of deer that are being killed for a time starts to decline because the roads became so dangerous that they became reluctant to cross them. So as you say, cars created roadkill, but more cars made it go away. And it was this sort of revelation that has an influence on road ecology for a while. What, what's happening at this part of, of the story? Right. So, you know, if you if you imagine, you know, a really busy interstate highway like I-70 or I-80, you know, or even, you know, smaller U.S. and state highways as well, you know, there's just so much traffic that animals don't even attempt to cross the highway, right? The traffic, no. you know, at a certain point just becomes this impenetrable wall that animals uh, just, you know, are, are not even going to risk their lives trying to cross. And, you know, all, all over the country, you know, you, there, there's sort of this fascinating pattern where there's this initial explosion of deer roadkill on new interstate highways. And then there's a decline in deer roadkill because the deer have just stopped trying to cross. You know, and some people say, well, you know, basically the problem has been solved by this moving fence of traffic. But, you know, that turns out to be really misleading, right? Because it turns out that obviously animals like deer and elk and antelope, you know, need to move long distances over the landscape to find food and habitat and shelter and mates and all, all of the things that they need. So, you know, starting in the 1960s and 70s, you know, there are a number of these really tragic events where, you know, herds of animals approach one of these interstate highways 
are unable to cross at all and end up starving en masse because they get, you know, stuck in the snow and they can't find their, uh, you know, their low elevation winter range. And that's almost worse than roadkill itself, right? You know, a herd of deer, elk, you know, they can survive, you know, a handful of collisions on the highway. What they can't survive is losing access to all of that habitat. So, you know, just because animals aren't dying on these big new interstate highways doesn't mean that the highways aren't, uh, you know, ecologically catastrophic. You say that animal lives are are defined by mobility. So talk a little bit more about the effect of roads on migration patterns. Uh, mule deer, for example, you write about, and this was interesting, like, I think there was some sense that people didn't really know how much mule deer were moving around, and they were kind of astounded how much, in fact, they were. Because you say that the interstate highway system, this is how you put it in the book, lopped off these migration routes as neatly as a guillotine. So talk a little bit about the patterns and what effect roads have had on them. Yeah, that you know, you're right that when these highways were built, you know, we didn't really have much understanding of, of how far a lot of these animals like mule deer, but also elk and pronghorn and moose and bighorn yeah. sheep and all kinds of creatures. We didn't know how far these animals were moving because we didn't really have a great way of studying them, right? You would see them on their winter range, you know, maybe you'd see them in the summer, but you didn't really know, you know, which deer were part of which herds and, you know, and how they were moving across the landscape. And it really wasn't until, you know, the early 2000s when satellite tracking collars start to, you know, become uh, relatively available and, and cheap that biologists, you know, put these collars on these animals and, and say, wait a second, you know, these animals are, are moving in some cases hundreds of miles trying to, uh, you know, get from point A to point B. I mean, especially in the American West, you know, where... We're it's a we're a pretty harsh region, right? You know, you if you're a deer, you know, you need to, you know, move between your gentle low elevation winter range in the valley and then go up into the mountains in the summer to find the, you know, the lush green forage. That's not really a you know a problem that you know, white-tailed deer in Virginia have, but you know, mule deer in the West really need to move long distances in many cases between these these seasonal ranges. And you know, if you have a highway bisecting that migration, you know, and you're at risk of either being killed by a car while making your migration or, you know, in the case of these big interstates, you know, you're unable to cross at all, you know, that can be uh, hugely problematic. You know, one of the mule deer herds that I wrote about and, and had a chance to visit in the book was this red desert herd in southwest Wyoming that migrates uh, from the area around Rock Springs up to, uh, you know, close to Jackson Hole. Those animals... They've got, uh, you know, I-80 at the south end of their winter range. And, you know, some years, you know, 40% of those deer will die because they can't cross I-80 getting to, uh, you know, the really good low elevation forage. And historically, you know, those deer might have gone as far south as Colorado. Nobody really knows. But today they have this wall of traffic that basically makes up the southern end of their territory. What did you learn about animal behavior in reporting this. That is, when an animal, a wild animal comes to a paved road, what does it make of it? You know, when do they give up? When do they figure, this is too dangerous, I can't do this? When are they, did they used to be as a wild creature just blithely unaware of, well, it's a different surface, but they'll just head over it. And, and how do they think about it now. Of the, I mean, like, what do we know about animal behavior in terms of what it thinks of a road that's intersecting, you know, its, its habitat? 
I, th- I think what's so interesting and, and complicated about road ecology is that you know, every species experiences roads in a different way, right? Uh, you know, you you, yeah. you do have species that, you know, are sort of blithely unaware. You know, you've got amphibians and reptiles, for example. Mm. Uh, you know, right. you've got frogs and salamanders. They're, you know, they're out there doing their, you know, their migration on warm spring nights, going to their breeding ponds. And, you know, and they're just, they just have this drive to reproduce. And, you know, they're going to make it to that pond no matter how many cars are in their way, you know. And that's why you see, uh, you know, in some places, especially in the Northeast, you know, these huge frog and salamander and toad squishing events where, you know, hundreds mm-hmm. or thousands get, you know, get crushed in a single night. You know, on the other end of the spectrum, you've got really smart, wary animals like grizzly bears, you know, are sort of the iconic road avoider. You know, they're, they're an animal that they're, they're so human and road shy that, you know, one car every 10 minutes, an incredibly low traffic rural road is enough to prevent them from, from crossing because they're just, you know, these, yeah, these kind of smart, cautious creatures that don't like traffic at all. And, you know, so grizzly bears, they don't get hit by cars very often, but but, you know, because they're so fearful of crossing, you know, their habitat is, is very easily fragmented by roads, right? Even a few cars is enough to, you know, keep them in a little island of forest uh, and prevent them from, you know, moving out and dispersing to meet uh, other bears. So for every, you know, sort of taxonomic group at every spatial scale, you know, roads are causing kind of a, a different set of problems. And I think that's one of the things that makes them so hard to address. It's Ben Goldfarb. His book is Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. We'll take another break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. When did uh, people start to realize that something needs to be done about all of this. I think it's interesting to – you mentioned in the book that a lot of the early innovations in terms of different kinds of like overpasses and underpasses and crossings, um, they were developed in, in Europe. Yeah. You know, Europe is full of great engineers and, uh, you know, they were definitely uh, ahead of us on, on this, uh, this curve. You know, really in the 1950s, you know, you start to see wildlife bridges popping up in, uh, in France mostly. And then, you know, countries like Germany and Switzerland and Austria and the Netherlands, especially, you know, are building crossings of their own. Um, you know, it's really not until the, the 1970s that you start to see, you know, wildlife crossings in the United States. And, you know, most of those are in Western states states. You know, you've got Colorado, Wyoming, Utah. You know, these are the states that have these big migratory herds of deer and elk. And, you know, when you get a thousand deer crossing a highway and, you know, 50 of them get hit by cars, well, there's this big pile of carcasses saying, you know, hey, put a wildlife crossing right here. That's when you really start to see you know, these interventions popping up in the U.S. But then it takes another 30 years or so before they become truly accepted. You know, I think that even though a lot of those early crossings were highly effective, you still saw lots of engineers saying, well, you know, these things are expensive. You know, yeah, they worked in Colorado, but, you know, are they really going to work in uh, New Mexico? And so, you know, every state has to kind of learn the lesson Mm -hmm. independently in, in some ways. And it's really not until, you know, the early 2000s that you start to see these things uh, truly proliferating uh, across the landscape. There's a, a, a wildlife bridge in 
Parley's Canyon. It's near the summit on I-80. Yeah. You know about that one. I do. And I'm just thinking about um, – I'm talk a little bit about that one. And what I want you to sort of give us a sense of, about is what works? Overpasses, underpasses. You also write a lot about how you get an animal to go through this dodgy tunnel because sometimes they just – they look too – they're too scary. They're too narrow. I mean, have and how engineers are having to sort of fine tune these, you know, these these crossings to get animals to actually use them. Right. You know. So we, I mean, we've been talking about how every animal kind of experiences roads in in different ways, right? And you know, by the same token, yeah. every animal experiences those crossings in different ways, and obviously different. Animals have, you know, different habitat requirements and different crossing requirements, right? You know, like one of the iconic examples of that is our, our pronghorn, right? Antelope, you know, these are species with incredibly good eyesight. And of course, they're the fastest land mammal in, in North America. So they want to be out in the open, right? Uh, you know, so whereas, a, you know, a mule deer will very happily walk through an underpass, you know, pronghorn really don't want to. They want to be up on a bridge where they can, you know, look out over the landscape to watch for predators and, and run away if they have to. So you really have to be thinking about all of these different species that you're trying to help and, you know, ideally, uh, you know, creating crossings that, uh, you know, that accommodate whatever species you're, uh, you're focused on. You know, the, the Parley's Canyon crossing is, is such an interesting one. And I, I had a chance to uh, check it out uh, last, last year for the first time, which was, which is really exciting. And of course I'd seen, you know, a million uh, viral videos of it. And, you know, the kind of the, the fascinating thing about it is that, you know, I think in a perfect world, that is not the kind of structure you would build, right? It's very long and skinny. It almost looks like a, like a catwalk when seen from above. You know, and there's not a whole lot of landscaping on it. When it was being built, you know, I, I talked to uh, a few road ecologists who were very skeptical that it was going to be yeah. functional uh, because it just seemed not to kind of meet the traditional requirements for, for a lot of species. And then, of course, you know, it has received a whole lot of wildlife use, you know, from everything from bobcats to black bears to moose to elk. You know, I'm sure most listeners have seen <laughs> seen those, those very viral yeah. videos of, of animals using that particular crossing. So, you know, I think it just goes to show that, you know, look, if you build in the right place, place animals will they will use these structures you know they're they're incredibly flexible and uh, adaptive and uh, intelligent and uh, you know they'll use even structures that don't seem uh, you know perfectly suited to them and then you know the other really important part of getting animals to use these things are the fences right you've got roadside fences that kind of funnel animals to the crossings it's not like you know the animals are thrilled to use the crossings it's more like the fences basically give them no choice you know if you're if they're going to cross the road at all they have to cross at that wildlife overpass so the you know the the fences don't get as much love and attention as the you know the big beautiful bridges and yet they're really uh, essential to making the crossings functional when you you write about the the the, the stakes for certain animals in figuring this out, trying to give them access to a crossing. Um, and and the, the story plays out in Los Angeles, for example, these, this, this particular radio-collared mountain lion, cougar, that you write about, P, P-22. Talk a little bit about this story and how isolated these mountain lions had become that they were – 
they didn't have mating pairs. And so there was, you know, inbreeding. And it, it's a really interesting kind of disturbing part of the story. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It is a disturbing story and really kind of a classic one, I, I think. So the story there is that there's this little population of mountain lions that lives in the Santa Monica Mountains, just just outside of Los Angeles, and they're surrounded by you know the busiest freeways in the world, essentially. You know, the 101, the 405, these giant ten lane superhighways that uh, you know transport hundreds of thousands of, of cars every day. And as a result of that, you know these these cats are really trapped on an island, right? They're, you know, sort of surrounded by this sea of uh, traffic and, uh, you know, suburban sprawl. And as a result, you know, they can't escape their little patch of habitat and no new cats can cross the highway to enter the patch of habitat, right? So these, you know, these poor mountain lions are, are basically stuck mating with each other. And, you know, eventually they end up breeding with their own daughters and granddaughters and great-granddaughters. And so the population has become very inbred over over time and they've you know they've begun to suffer genetic defects and they've kind of entered what scientists have called a, an extinction vortex this long-term doom spiral so it's a, a very stark example uh, of a, a problem that uh, you know that highways are, are causing uh, all over the all over the world um, so you know in this case what what's happening now uh, very excitingly uh, is that you know the state of California with a, a lot of contributions from, you know, private philanthropists uh, is building this giant wildlife overpass, this bridge that's going to cross the 101, this, you know, this 10-lane uh, superhighway and uh, allow those mountain lions to disperse out of their little island and allow new mountain lions to enter the population and just encourage that gene flow that's going to, you know, theoretically save this, uh, this little population. You write about noise pollution. You write about light pollution, how it disrupts the lives of animals. Um, there's also this part I wanted to ask you about how scavengers draw sustenance from this, which is an interest, kind of a, I don't know, maybe a silver lining to the story, I suppose. Um, talk a little bit about this. This, this is where you sort of tell the, the parable of the the vultures at the space center. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, that's a, a, a great, a great story too. And, you know, basically the, the situation there at, 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 at the Kennedy space center in, in uh, South Florida, the space center is basically in the middle of kind of a wildlife refuge. And so lots of animals would get hit by you know, employees of the space center commuting to work every day. And all of those carcasses attracted vultures as, you know, carcasses are, yeah. are want to do. And, and then those vultures actually, and Ended up in one instance colliding with a space shuttle during its launch, and and uh, you know nearly uh, causing a, a, a crash. And so you know that basically the the space center's employees you know had to uh, sort of create this roadkill task force to clean up all of that roadkill to prevent this vulture strike uh, incident. You know, and I, I think what that story goes to show is that you know roads are you know, they're ecosystems in their, their own right, right? Yeah. And, you know, we've, we've been talking about, you know, all of the, the death and destruction and habitat loss that they inflict. But, you know, there are, there are winners out there too, right? And those, you know, those, those scavenging birds especially are, are uh, you know, some of the, the biggest winners in, in some cases. But, you know, it's also obviously, a, you know, a very dangerous form of, of sustenance, mm -hmm. right? If you're, you know, a, a golden eagle in Utah, you know, and you, you've been feeding on a, you know, a, a dead mule deer on the shoulder, 
shoulder, well, you've got a belly full of venison and it's, you know, pretty hard to achieve yeah. liftoff, right? And you, you're at risk of becoming roadkill yourself. So, you know, the road, so the road is, yes, it is this ecosystem. There's, you know, there's bounty to be had there, but it's also this very dangerous form of bounty that can lure animals into this ecological trap. The, the last section of the book is kind of about the, the future, what, what, what might be coming. It's interesting you say – so whenever we sort of reach this point when you know, the roads are filled with autonomous vehicles, what is that going to mean for roadkill and road ecology? Can you, you know, create a I don't know, software program and plug it into a car that takes into account the myriad creatures who die on roads every day? What have you learned about that? Yeah, it's it's a you know it's such a, a good and and uh, important question, and it's you know one that I, I don't think uh, autonomous vehicle developer developers are, are really thinking about. I mean, you know, so right now the situation is basically that you know these these AVs I, I think eventually are going to be really so much better than humans at avoiding the large animals, right? Because, you know, it's sort of the, the way that their sensors, you know, their cameras and radar and LIDAR are being developed is, is basically to avoid human pedestrians, right? So anything that's, you know, sort of larger than a, a toddler uh, is going to activate that kind of human pedestrian avoidance and your car will break, you know, for the moose or the deer or the elk, you know, that you, a fallible human driver, don't necessarily see. So, you know, I think, I, obviously, self Driving cars are very buggy right now. There's, you know, I think that the the there's a lot of pessimism and, and negativity around the industry at the moment. But you know, I, I think ultimately they're going to be much better at avoiding large animal collisions than we drivers are, right? So that's you know that's pretty good news if you're a deer, but it's not necessarily good news if you're a turtle or you know a squirrel or or a snake, right? You know because autonomous vehicle developers are not thinking about those smaller creatures, and it's even you know you could imagine a scenario where you know AVs lead to more small animal roadkill, you know, and then you know I think that the the bigger issue than than roadkill itself, you know, is just the increase in vehicle travel in general that, you know, autonomous vehicles are going to produce, right? When you're, you know, when your car is, you know, your automatic chauffeur and you can just sit in the back seat, you know, working on your mm -hmm. laptop or watching Netflix or whatever, well, you know, suddenly commuting is not that big a deal. And you're, you know, you're probably willing to drive a lot farther because, you know, the annoyance of driving has kind of become, you know, potentially productive times. There's lots of, you know, there's lots of transportation modeling that basically all of which says, you know, that, that autonomous cars are going to lead to more vehicle miles traveled, more cars on the road. And that's just going to you know, enhance that barrier effect, right? That wall of traffic that prevents animals from crossing highways and, and making it to their, their habitats. So, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, especially sanguine about what the future of uh, autonomous vehicles means for wildlife. Well, you say there's a tsunami uh, headed our way in terms of human infrastructure expansion. Um, I guess I wanted to, um, with that in mind, and th there are all kinds of different places you go to, to, to talk about these, these moments. And I wanted to end with your experience writing about Brazil. Um, Brazil seems like a, kind of a remarkable place. For some reason, there are a lot of road ecologists there with all these new ideas. And let's talk about what you found um, I'm so fascinated in the innovation of this road in Sao Paulo, SP-139, mm. and I'm not sure it's practical 
to to impose an idea like this everywhere in the United States. But the way they were rethinking a road, the way they were rethinking the way it was designed. Just take us through this because I think this is really interesting. Right. So that, you know, that, that tsunami you, you mentioned, Doug, you know, this, this kind of idea of the infrastructure tsunami is, as, uh, you know, one ecologist called it. Basically what that refers to is this wave of planned new construction in the developing world, right? You know, here, here in the U.S., you know, we, we really, ha- we have our highways and, and, you know, yes, we're, you know, building lots of smaller, you know, residential roads and we're, you know, expanding some highways, but, we're, you know, like we're not building new interstates, right? We, you know, we sort of have our infrastructure and, and we're just, we're mostly tweaking around the margins. Whereas, you know, fast developing countries, you know, like Kenya, Myanmar, Nepal, Brazil, uh, you know, they're building out a lot of infrastructure right now. And, you know, the, the challenge there is that, you know, yes, a lot of those highways will be good for, you know, for human flourishing, you know, they'll help kids get to school and, you know, people get to hospitals and help, they'll help farmers get their crops to market. So, you know, they're good from a human prosperity standpoint, but, you know, those countries are also some of the last intact habitats, you know, on, on this, this planet, especially Brazil, which is, you know, the most biodiverse country in the world. But the thing about that infrastructure tsunami is that when you're building out your your highways for the first time rather than you know retrofitting them you can really do it right from the outset right and you know and, and i don't want to say that that's happening everywhere even most of the time but you know there are some great examples out there uh, of countries that are you know building their infrastructure now and are are learning from our mistakes here in north america uh, and doing it a lot better than we did so you know in in india for example there's this highway through a tiger sanctuary yeah. and the, the whole highway is elevated on these giant concrete pillars so that the tigers and other animals can walk walk back and forth, you know, for many miles uh, without being disturbed by the highway. And, you know, the road that you're referring to in, in Brazil, I think is another piece of, you know, really creative engineering. And, and so the situation there is that basically they, you know, they built this highway through a state park, which is not ideal. But, you know, they built the highway in such a way that you can't drive fast on it. It's very intentionally curvy and it actually kind of undulates up and down like a, you know, like a roller coaster. You know, you couldn't drive faster than 30 miles an hour or so if you wanted to, you know, because of the way that it's been designed. And as a result of that, you know, road kill rates have, are really low. And they also close the road at night, which is something that, you know, we don't, we don't do uh, here in the U.S. basically anywhere. And so, you know, are there all of these cool design features that, uh, you know, I think that we could, we could learn a lot from. So do you feel, I don't know, the tsunami's coming. Do you feel optimistic that, that, that humans are going to react to it in a way that's responsible, that takes into account all of these creatures? I mean, there was this article, you, you, you mentioned it in the, in the New York Times was a few years ago. It was called The End of Roadkill. And it made <laughs> yeah. me wonder, gosh, is that even possible? Is it possible that there could be an end to it? But you, you, you mentioned this toward the end of the book. You say that in the course of, of writing the book that you had felt at times kind of like a defeatist by talking about these wildlife passages. Um, like, no, we, th- that's, that's giving in or something. Um, but, but you say you also want to be realistic. So just maybe say something about that finally, how you're thinking about the way you're balancing these ideas and your sense of whether it's op- optimism or pessimism about all of this. I don't know. I, th- you know, I think, I think like a, like a lot of, uh, you know, people who 
care about wildlife i you know i oscillate between hope and despair you know there's uh i mean yeah. look you know on 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 the the hopeful end there's just so much interest and momentum and new funding around dealing with this problem, right? I, you know, I met, I mean, literally hundreds of people who are working on this issue in the 2021 Infrastructure Act, you know, had this giant pot of, uh, you know, $350 million for wildlife crossings, which was, you know, the first time we've really allocated a, a huge chunk of federal funding to this problem. That's all good news, right? There are more people working on this problem where, you know, we're more aware of it than ever before. And it's really nonpartisan. That's a nice thing about, uh, you know, this issue as well. I mean, nobody wants to hit a deer, obviously. And, uh, you know, I feel like wildlife crossings are, you know, one of the only environmental causes that's equally supported by the hunting lobby and the humane society, right? Uh, you know, it's a, it's a nice nonpartisan uh, issue in a, a very polarized world. So that's all, that's all good and makes me feel hopeful. But, you know, on the other side, as you say, you know, there's so much new construction, you know, driving rates are going through the roof all over the country and, and the world. And so, you know, this the scope of the problem is increasing, you know, even as the, the scope of the solution is is increasing. And I you know, I guess the the question, and this is the I mean the question for every environmental problem you can name, right? But is the you know, the extent of the solution and the, the attention and funding for the solution being scaled appropriately with the growing nature of the problem, you know, and that's, I think that's um, what, what keeps me up at night is uh, I feel like as much as we're doing on this issue, there's still so much more that we could be doing, right? You know, there, as I said, there were $350 million for wildlife crossings in the 2021 Infrastructure Act. Well, there were $110 billion for, you know, highway upgrades and expansions and repairs pairs that are going to exacerbate the problem, right? So we're thinking about the solution in a new way, but, you know, are we doing it at the scale that we need to be? I think that's the issue. Ben Goldfarb, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Doug. I appreciate your great questions. Ben Goldfarb, his book is Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. Radio West is a production of KUER. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas or comments or feedback, you can email us at radiowest at KUER.org. The program is produced by Benjamin Bombard and Tim Slover. Kerry Watson is our executive producer. I'm Doug Fabrizio.